This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Is there going to be an education strike in the fall? It's not as likely as you think, and it's not as unlikely as it would have been a year ago at this time. Let me set the scene as for why that's the case. Ontario public school teachers want to have a strike vote next month, and I bet you that they will. Um, talks have dragged. That's I see a lot in the headlines this morning of most of the papers that contract talks have dragged. They certainly have. And let me make this very clear. One of the big jobs for Education Minister Stephen Lecce, who I've praised when he deserves it, criticized when he doesn't. It's a, it, not an easy post, not an easy portfolio. You're going to get it from this side, get it from that side. Some of the things that are written to Stephen Lecce and about Stephen Lecce, for example, on social media, I really believe this, are worse than any politician this side of Justin Trudeau. It's terrible. Uh, there's threats. There's uh, terrible statements about him, his family, who he is, what he does, his morals, his ethics. Awful stuff. Awful stuff. And I watched that happen a fair amount during the uh, QP labor issues last year. And then I would point it out and then I'd get it. Nobody has ever sent me worse stuff in social media. Nobody has than uh, people in a bit of an education fight. Take that for what you will. I don't love it. Um, it's, a, again, a changed world. Uh, my parents both taught. They would never behave that way. It, like They would never reach out to somebody they didn't know and cast aspersions about their character. You can debate, disagree, um, say a point is idiotic, that's fine, but almost to wish that you you know slammed into the guardrail and, and flew your car into Lake Ontario is really quite something. Really something. And saying all that, the teachers are going to have some support from the public this time around that they wouldn't have had last fall and they sure wouldn't have had uh, during COVID. The government's offering teachers at the high school level a 1.25% pay increase per year. That's lousy. Now, a lot of people are comparing uh, their contract and their raises to what police get. Don't do that. The jobs aren't the same. Don't compare yourself to nurses. Don't compare yourself to police. You're important in your own right. Who's kidding who? Teachers are massively, massively important. But there's an element of disingenuity to compare different scenarios across this province. Now, can I tell you what's disingenuous as well? I will in a sec. And I heard this from Stephen Lecce yesterday, and I will not defend him. I will criticize him for it to play uh, the balanced up the middle person that I actually am in this particular scenario. But first, here's Karen Brown from the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario at their group's general meeting, pointing out what's coming. Colleagues, comrades, friends, we have reached a tipping point. Edfo's patience has run out. Our members' patience have run out. We now need to pressure this government to come to the table and to start to bargain with us seriously. Okay, so there's Karen Brown documenting the fact that things have changed. Now, yesterday, I did hear Stephen Lecce point out that this is what teachers make in Ontario. Well, yeah, they signed up to be teachers in Ontario. Teachers in Ontario are some of the West, uh, most well-paid teachers in all of Canada. Uh-huh. It's expensive to live in Ontario. They signed up to teach her. They did, they're not a sports team. They didn't get traded here. And then less genuine than that is the concept, look at what they make in some other countries. No, 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 no. That's not what we're doing. You're a politician and you live in Ontario and you make more as a politician than some politicians in some other countries. They signed up to teach here, live here, work here. We should only be talking about Ontario wages. We really should. I don't care what other provinces are doing with education if I care about Ontario education. I don't need to hear. I know, I know that there's teachers in the States who get paid 38 grand who buy a ton of their own school supplies, who bust it. They're already back in school now in some states. They get shorter summer breaks. So see that for for whatever you will. And when I say all of that, all of that, let me make the point that I think you're underestimating in the city of Toronto how popular this conservative government is outside of the city of Toronto. So there's a little bit of a lens here, a little bit of a Toronto lens, a little bit of a union lens, a little bit of this is where it all happens. Where's uh, at Foe's meeting? Toronto. You guessed it. It's not in Sarnia. 
Okay, it's not in Amherstburg, Ontario. That's just outside of Windsor, uh, near Kingsville um, and uh, LaSalle. Okay, it's not in Timmins. It's nowhere else. And the conservative government, um, I'm telling you, voters have their back. Somehow, some way, it's gotten to that point. You can call it neglect from the other parties. You can talk about ideology. You can talk about this. You can talk about that. This PC government is super popular uh, outside of big cities. They are. It's not just about the voting. It's about the turnout. It's not just about winning elections. It's winning landslide elections. Monty McNaughton's a great example. He's the labor minister. He's in Lambton, Kent, Middlesex. That's where my parents would vote. Uh, 59.43% in 2022. He upped his percentage by over 4%. The liberals, right? The liberals want to make a big run here. They got some big names and really smart ideas. They're kind of renovating and, and rebuilding themselves, and they needed to after Kathleen Wynne in 2018 and after Stephen Del Duca last fall. So they got good ideas. Nate Erskine-Smith, wicked smart, brilliant ideas. He's getting, I know he's getting people under 40 signed up by the masses. Bonnie Crombie, established mayor. People know her. Definitely in the GTA, a seasoned politician. She just wins also. The liberals in the riding I just spoke of, 9% last time out. 9% and Monty McNaughton had 59. I'm telling you this to point out the work that needs to be done here. So, again, we got Toronto glasses on sometimes. Show's called Toronto Today. I'm living in downtown. I'm sitting in downtown Toronto right now, and you're in the GTA probably listening to me. And if you're not, you already know. You already know how popular this Ford government is. Don't Not everything is, but enough is that people don't want to change. So are they going to back their education minister here? Are they going to back the idea? Are they going to have a stiff upper lip and handle some labor disputes? We'll see. We will see. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I was driving home. I heard our next guest's uh, voice yesterday in the morning. A news conference for Peter Bethlenfalvy about economic growth in the province turned into quite something else. He is uh, Pickering's MPP. There was a mass demonstration. Honestly, bigger than anybody anticipated uh, of 350, 400 people protesting um, the decision on the green belt. And it's it's just got some extra strength after the Auditor General's report. So on that, and as well, some education issues as well, our Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Colin DeMello. It's great to have you on. Thanks for getting up early for us. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, like I said, uh, you're you're too savvy. Somebody like Cynthia Mulligan, too savvy. You weren't quite going to let uh, <laughs> let Peter Bethlenfalvy yesterday just talk about uh, economic growth and percentage points and whatnot. Um, it's his riding. A massive amount of development is planned in his riding. Um, and uh, and it was his first your first chance to get him to comment publicly about it. Yeah, and I think you're going to see the situation at Queen's Park repeatedly, right? Every cabinet minister is going to face these questions just because the Greenbelt investigation by the Auditor General revealed so much. And I think a lot of us are trying to get to the bottom of the question of how is it that nobody knew, nobody had a hand in this except for one chief of staff? I spoke with the Ontario Liberals yesterday. They said they don't believe that for one second. So with the Dufferin's Rouge Agricultural Preserve, it's about 4,700 acres. It's in Pickering. It's in the minister's, uh, the minister of finance, Peter Bethlenfalvy's mm -hmm. political backyard, so to speak. It's in his riding. So we wanted to know from him, you know, what, what did you know, right? And I asked him point blank, do you have any conversations with developers uh, to remove those lands from your own riding? And the minister was kind of caught off guard by the question. He seemed to, to stumble a little bit before getting his bearings. And, you know, perhaps searching for the talking point, as most politicians do, that's somewhere in their head. Um, you know, he basically said, no, he didn't sit down with any developers for, for the removal of lands from uh, the Green Belt. Uh, but then he also very quickly said, look, he supports the initiative because he supports the government and he supports the building of 50,000 homes in the Green Belt, even though there have been multiple reports that have said, you know, there's enough land outside of the Green Belt to achieve 1.5 million homes. You don't need the land in the Green Belt. Yeah, it's it's a unique scenario. I was mentioning this earlier. We're, we're 14 months, Colin, removed from, uh, a, you know, an emphatic majority win for the, the conservatives in the election. Both leaders of the liberals and NDP resigned that night. I'd argue there's new energy 
with the NDP, with Marit Stiles. There's going to be new energy with the liberal leader, whether I think it's down to to Nader Erskine Smith or Bonnie Crombie, but we'll see. I think there's going to be some new energy. They won two by-elections. But but it you do wonder, Colin, like that we're a long way off from people registering to vote and voting again and an election campaign and whether or not this issue can get stretched out long enough for, you know, the, the better part of 30 months is what they'd need for both either party to make some ground up here. Yeah, I mean, you know, there is um, a common thought within a lot of the political circles here is that, you know, the people who like Doug Ford, it will take a lot to kind of change their mentality. And the people who don't like Doug Ford, well, they're never moving into his camp anyway. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we always kind of try to assess how much, not necessarily how much damage this is going to do, but how much of an impact it's going to have to move that needle with uh, people who might find themselves in the middle. You know, we have seen that some decisions that the government has made, whether it's uh, the privatization or the additional private delivery of health care, that has had an impact on their base. Uh, we've seen, you know, stuff like the Green Belt or using the notwithstanding clause yeah. uh, for education support workers. It, 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 it chips away. Now, it's, it's a long time between now and the next election. Uh, and, and we saw in 2019, you know, the the Ford government after that budget of cuts was very unpopular, but they came back with a larger majority. So politics is, mm. you know, a lot of people have short memories in politics um, and it, it, it's a long runway between now and the next election. So they can definitely do a lot of good between now and then and definitely recover. I think so. Colin DeMello is joining us, uh, Queens Park Bureau Chief on Toronto Today. And you make the point, after 2019, we obviously went into the pandemic and, and who the pandemic favor? It pretty much favored incumbents at every level of government because the concept was you've got our back, you're taking care of us, you're you're doing this, doing that. But there were some, the one thing that people, I know liberals and NDP uh, supporters and some of the politicians were frustrated by is, is that Doug Ford earned a reputation to take an unpopular decision, Colin, and walk it back. Oh, you don't want playgrounds closed? Okay, I'll walk that back within a day. Notwithstanding clause, I'll pull that back as well. Um, so there was there were there were a lot of moments where it looked like he could pivot quickly. It's the one thing the federal government right now gets criticized about. You're you're steadfast and and you'll you'll die on this hill, as it were. This looks like a die on the hill moment here. There's no element whatsoever of this government that's even considering um, taking the bids away or redoing the product. They will not follow that 15th guideline. They'll fall 14, but they won't shut this down and, and, and redo this. No, that's absolutely right. And the premier has been kind of betting over backwards to kind of take a look at the population uh, levels uh, with increased immigration to say, well, that's the reason why we need these additional 50,000 homes. I, I will point out that, you know, a lot of this context of the conversation around building housing is affordable housing. Mm-hmm. And the premier says that they're going to mandate that some of these 50,000 homes are going to be affordable, but they say only 10 percent will have to be affordable, which means some 5,000 homes out of those 50,000 are going to be affordable. And, and you, you know the trend, right? You look around the city, you look at, at, at what kinds of homes are being built. Um, you know, yeah. some of these homes, uh, critics argue, might be uh, mansions. But, the, but the, the point here is by going through with this, the Auditor General found that the value of that land for those developers who may have bought it for hundreds of millions has now grown to billions of dollars, $8 billion. And I think that is really where a lot of the question marks lie here, right? The, the government manipulated a process, fast-tracked everything, um, you know, tried to kind of restrain public consultation for a select few developers who've seen their property values go up from hundreds of millions to $8 billion. And that, I think, is what some people say is a conflict of interest and yeah. corruption because it benefits people who have a vested interest. I got about 90 seconds here, but obviously uh, battle lines are being drawn. Uh, Karen Brown's joining us next hour, but this uh, this doesn't end. And not surprising, if you're starting for the second year in a row without a contract, if your contract expired 15 months ago, um, and and you're a powerful union, naturally you're gonna you're gonna kick some sand around uh, late in the summer and get this going. This is a big task, big task for the education minister to uh, to pay out the proper amount, uh, but certainly to make sure kids stay in school in October, November. Well, something tells me a lot of the teachers may have already made up their minds, the teachers' unions, that is, on where they're going to go. Uh, because two teachers' unions, the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario and OSSTF, representing secondary school teachers in the public system, have both said, look, 
you know, we're going to hold strike votes and they're looking to put pressure on the government. And it doesn't really seem like, you know, the government is going to budge with with what they're offering uh, these unions. So I, I, I don't know what what this holds for the next few months, but we are once again going to enter another school year with a tremendous amount of conversation about whether or not kids are going to be in the classroom for the rest of the year. So this will be an ongoing issue, but one that puts the province and the Ford government directly in the path to another strike. No question. Hey, Colin, great stuff. Thanks so much for this. We really appreciate the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, Colin DeMello joining us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's News, Today's Talk. 640 Toronto. I'm happy to welcome on the president of the ETFO. She's making uh, time for us and squeezing us in this morning, and I really appreciate it because they are busy uh, with their annual members meeting. Karen Brown joins us on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on, and I, uh, like I said, I appreciate you uh, you getting, getting our listeners uh, the time. It's uh, important days right now, so thank you. Thank you for having me on. What are you hopeful gets done? We're 21 days away from everybody going back after Labor Day. Are you hoping some of what you said yesterday, some of of the potential for a strike vote in the fall really gets wheels in motion here for you to talk more with the province, Karen? Uh, absolutely. We've been without a contract for almost a year. We've been at the negotiation table with uh, with the government um, you know, almost a year, and we've had very little bit, little movement. And so, for us, we want them to uh, take bargaining seriously. This is signaling um, we need to get a deal for our members. We want, we want stability in the schools. Parents want stability. Uh, they need to come to the table in good faith with with the deal. What have been the most frustrating elements of the spring and summer? As you mentioned, um, it's been 14, 15 months. Uh, the end of the school year in, in June of or June of 22 seems ages ago. So for parents, I, I hope it's a wake-up call to parents realizing that you don't have a deal yet. We went through the QP thing in the fall, and I think people thought, well, maybe all the unions, like Domino's, will, will find a happy medium with the government. And none of that has happened. Absolutely, absolutely not. And we have not put unreasonable... Um, offers on the table. We're looking at improvements in special education. We're looking at issues to address violence within the schools. And of course, with inflation and the cost of living in Ontario, we're looking at compensation for our members. Uh, so these are the things that the government has not uh, provided an adequate, an adequate response for our members. Why not mention the strike vote a few months ago? Um, why not suggest this in April or as the school year is ending? Everybody's just got a different mindset about this. I, I understand the concept, but you you do realize that parents will be more alarmed, more concerned. I get that that may bring you closer to a deal and that works for everybody. But was there consideration of doing this a few months ago? Uh, we have been in negotiations with negotiations with the government over the summer. Uh, and so we've been negotiating with them in July. We have two more dates uh, planned at the end of August. So really, this is, you know, the ball is now in the government's hand. They can prevent any disruption by bargaining in good faith. They have the resources. They're sitting on a $22 billion surplus. Uh, they need to make a commitment to education. They have the ability uh, to, to do this. We need to see a, a goodwill uh venture from them in, in doing this. What we've seen is a government that wants to circumvent our collective bargaining rights, which was they, they've done lately with introducing a new uh, PPM without having those discussions at the bargaining table where it belongs. We see a government who just wants to bully. They don't get what they want, and then they try to impose things. So there are several things here where it's really on them and coming to the bargaining table in good faith and following on the bargaining guidelines. I found um, not being an educator, being a child of two of them, um, I found 5% over four years to be insulting. How do your members view it? Well, with, with the cost of living, as, as I said before, it's not keeping up with the cost of living in this province in Ontario. We look at other governments in BC and in New Brunswick where they were able to have a reasonable settlement with their members um, that reflect the, the cost of living and re- reflect uh, the working conditions that members want. So this government has the ability if they have the will. We've seen it in other provinces. Why not into Ontario? So yes, their offer is absolutely insulting and and our members expect to deserve more. When you um, think about the public response, you know uh, education gets people uh, riled up and, and it gets people um, picking sides. And unfortunately, it gets very about politics and ideology when it should be about practicality what's fair how do we make a happy medium here 
what do you think the public support will be? And I'd ask, do you think it would be different than it would have been last year at this time when we're all wanting a normal school year, wanting activities back? Many teachers wanted those back as well. They want to coach teams, want to go on field trips. It's part of schools, not just about the classroom. Uh, Well, absolutely. I think we were just coming out of a pandemic, which our members did the best to keep students um, engaged and learning throughout that pandemic. I think parents appreciated uh, what what takes place in the classroom, having to be with their kids. So I I do believe there's still a great deal of public support uh, in regards to what's what's happening in education. Um, Yeah, I I do think that. Um, I I do think that. I worry worry there's a perception um, that sometimes unions wanted schools closed and and, and the education minister... Um, just plain did their bidding. Um, I think I didn't think parents had a great say in that process. I think kids at times, I would make the case, I feel bad for them because I know you're doing what you should be for your union, but I worry kids are just stuck in the middle and they're kind of pawns in this process here. And, and I said, I'm going to turn that right back over to the government. Uh, they have the ability to make this happen. Uh, they have are the ones who have cut $1,200 for people funding from education. They can invest in this. Uh, I think parents need to know that uh, smaller class sizes benefit students, Mm. that more resources for special education, special education teachers benefit students. This government is talking about a kindergarten screener, which is just just announced. Who's going to provide those resources once those kids are tested? Are they just going to be tested and sitting there without the support, without the education support teachers, without the special needs assistance? It's great. But once again, that doesn't change anything. And that's what parents need to know. These are some of the things that are key issues at the bargaining table, the violence that we're seeing in our schools that our members are experiencing, yeah. that students are witnessing and they're seeing are normalized. These are some serious concerns that impact uh, students and parents and grandparents. They need to know that. So these are some of the issues. I think they can say, hey, the government has a responsibility to address and they have the resources to do it. Yeah, the, the, the responsibility is, is certainly there. We hope there's a lot of progress over the next 21 days, Karen. Thanks very much for spending time today and reach out anytime when you've got something to say on this matter. I appreciate you coming on this morning. Hey, thank you very much. Take K- care. Karen Brown joining us uh, from ETFO. She's the president of that organization. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Um, so we had a real run on in-studio guests during the mayoral election. Um, And I think had we had any city councilor, including uh, the gentleman across from me in, he would have been asked, are are you running for mayor? Is there something you're not telling me? And I don't think this I want to play or is there something you're not telling me games? Uh, But he's in right now uh, and he is the city councilor for Ward 23 Scarborough North and the new chair of the Toronto Transit Commission. He is Jamal Myers. It's nice to have you in studio. This is great. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Excited to finally meet you in person. Thank you. Yes. Um, and and when we look back, uh, you won. I wouldn't say you won handily, but you won. It's nice to have a plurality, a majority of votes. You had 51 percent of the votes in your ward. So uh, often those things are nice in a three party system. Provincially, that's hard to get federally. That's really hard to get. But you can honestly say more people voted for me than the other way around. Exactly. So, you know, my voters, my residents have had a lot of trust in me and I've really worked hard to make sure I'm delivering on what we promised. What got you into it anyway? And had it been something you were flirting with for a while or when last summer, like last summer, probably around this time, you're getting more sure, just emboldened that you're going to do this, you know, by August of last year, you're going to run? So I actually knew when I moved back from uh, New York, I was living in New York for seven and a half years and I moved back in 2018 and I knew I eventually wanted to get into local politics. Uh, So I actually spent 2018, ironically enough, as a transit organizer in Scarborough, uh, organizing residents for better transit, uh, you know, and then that spread to other things such as, you know, better health care, local economic development. Uh, eventually sat on the community police liaison committee. So it's been a long process and, you know, I'm really, really happy uh, with the outcome. I think we're starting to realize that the at the municipal level, everyday lives are so affected by it. And we should know that probably from a young age, but we get kind of starstruck, right? We look at who's the U.S. president, who's the prime minister in the U.K. and, and the prime minister here. Of course, it matters, but the real practical stuff, your taxes, where you live, safe streets, safe neighborhood, getting getting to work, highways and whatnot, there's so much of it is all about the municipal politics. It's all about the municipal politics. And most people just don't realize how much municipal politics affects you on your daily life. 
you know, your TTC ride, whether there's potholes, uh, whether the grass is cut, whether the garbage is picked up, if your water running, if your electricity there, uh, so much of what affects us on a day-to-day uh, basis is done at the municipal level. And that's, you know, really what attracted to me. Uh, there's this level of accountability because either the, the pothole is fixed or it's not. The grass yeah. is cut or it's yeah. not. And there's really no getting around it. So that's really what attracted to me. Um, so you're born in Scarborough. You go to New York for, you said, seven and a half years? Seven and a half years. How had Scarborough changed when you got back? Even though I'm sure you were back periodically, but it takes more than just a few days or a week at a time to get a sense of the changes. When you got back in 2018, how different did it look from your childhood? So it looked different because I was seeing it really with fresh eyes. Uh, You know, growing up in Scarborough, uh, I just sort of took it as normal that it was so diverse that I I went to Catholic school. So my friends were Italian, they were Filipino, they were Polish, they were (laughs) Sri Lankan, they were West Indian. So I just assumed this is how everybody grew up in the rest of the world. And it wasn't until I was living in other cities. I lived in, you know, London, England. I lived in Montreal. I lived in New York. Um... Other cities are diverse, but they're not that integrated. Even in Toronto, you don't see that level of integration where, you know, kids are going to school together, the parents are friends, uh, the churches are quite diverse. And I think it's really something unique that a lot of people don't see when you're living it. But, you know, it's, it's, it's something very unique about Scarborough that you have friends, even family members of different ethnicities, different races. And it's quite normal. Nobody bats an eye. And I think that's something really special about our community that took me, you know, leaving uh, and then coming back to sort of see, wow, this is something really special. And I think what's really changed about Scarborough is, you know, when I was growing up, Scarborough had like a bad rap. You know, people ask you where you're from. You say, oh, I'm from Scarborough. Now you're like, yeah, I'm from Scarborough and I'm proud of it. There's more Uh, pride. Oh, definitely. Uh, And you kind of see it, you know, Scarborough has its own unique identity within Toronto. I always say, you know, Scarborough, the parallel is Scarborough reminds me of being the Brooklyn of Toronto, where, you know, it's part of New York City, but it has its own identity. And that's really mm. how I feel about Scarborough. You know, we're part of Toronto. We're part, we're proud to be part of Toronto, but we really have our own unique identity and we're really proud about it. Jamal Myers is in studio with us on Toronto today. We're going to uh, stay with him until eight o'clock. He'll stay with us and we appreciate him coming in. Are you saying Scarborough wants its own NBA team like Brooklyn? Would that, uh, well, be, that would be something. A Scarborough, whatever, against the Toronto Raptors would really, you'd really have to pick sides then. It would split families apart, Jamal. We'd have a civil war over it. Well, we do have the Scarborough shooting stars, so we are quite proud <laughs> know, of that. I know, yeah. I know. I don't know that they're beating the Raptors. It depends on the Raptors. Like, if you, you make a bad trade for Pascal Siakam, yeah. the shooting stars might be able to uh, to grab a game or two, right? They're not. It's not going to be the Harlem Globetrotters-Washington Generals um, scenario. But you bring that up, and I always relate this. I'm in Ajax, and we moved in Ajax from Michigan in 07 and my kids soccer team I always say this and I'm proud of it it looks like the United Nations there's eight different nationalities and I grew up outside of London white kid and the first people of different ethnicities and diversities and even religions I started to see were when I went to Western because you'd have um, you'd have Indian and Pakistani people coming you'd have Jewish people coming you'd have and that's that's what we're supposed to be and and we're raising these kids so that that's normal in the environment and they accept people for their actions and not what they look like. That's what we want to judge people by. What are your words? What are your actions? Not where you come from. Exactly. And, you know, that's one of the beautiful things about being from Scarborough. It's just such a natural part of who you are to accept people as they are and to judge them by their words and actions, not from where they came from or their accent or who they worship or how they worship. Not a commentary on the prior mayor, not a commentary on the present mayor, but should Scarborough have its own mayor? Uh, I think, you know, we are well on our way to being integrated into uh, the city of Toronto. What I think Scarborough needs is more investment, more attention. Uh, There's a policy in the city that tries to do a one-size-fits-all. It doesn't work in the rest of the city. It might work in downtown, but it doesn't work for Scarborough. You know, you look at, you know, example, Cafe Tio. Great, successful program, uh, works well in the downtown. In my ward, there's one Cafe Tio. Uh, you know, and this is something- I'm surprised that, there's one. I, like exactly. I, am, I, I don't think people would think that that would be true. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, this is being subsidized by the rest of the city. So how do we roll out something similar to Cafe Tio in areas such as Scarborough? That's what we have to start getting to. Same thing with Bike Share. You know, Bike Share is a great program in the downtown. It doesn't work at all in Scarborough because there aren't, you know, protected bike lanes. And people don't feel safe. And if they don't feel safe, they're not going to ride these bikes. 
But again, this is something that the rest of the city is subsidizing. So how do we bring things like bike share to you know, Scarborough, Etobicoke, York, North York? Uh, that's where we really, we really have to get as a city. Well, I think we're in that um, zone, and maybe we always were, but it's it's more amplified now. And and I think people say times are, are so tight for most people that they say, why would my tax dollars go to something that I don't use? This was very much, as you know, this was very much the argument about um, former Councillor Anna Baila wanting to to you know upload the Gardner and the DVP, but I get somebody in Sarnia or North Bay saying, why am I paying for that? for Torontonians to get in and out of their city, right? Why am I paying for that upkeep? It's a fair point. There, there, there's an argument both ways is my, is what I'm saying. Yeah. And, you know, to be clear, we're happy to pay for it. You know, we, we you know, some people from Scarborough work downtown. They go downtown regularly. We, they enjoyed restaurants downtown. They ride bikes downtown. So it's not a, that, you know, yeah. it's a Scarborough versus downtown thing. It's okay. This works downtown. What are you doing in Scarborough? And we're just here to say, you know, it's no longer acceptable to just say, you know, Scarborough doesn't ride bikes or Scarborough doesn't want Cafe Tio. No. no, we want it, but we want it to work in our community. We've got Jamal Myers in studio with us, uh, city councillor and new chair of the TTC. We'll, we'll get to the concept of the TTC, but how has the dynamic changed? You've you've had the uniqueness, clearly, um, for, for better or worse, of John Tory was the mayor for the first three or four months of you being city councillor. And now Olivia Chow has the tone changed because obviously we got into a situation with a mayoral by-election that when you, it's not even like an age thing or a health thing, nobody could have anticipated we'd be voting twice for mayor, Jamal, in six months. Nobody could have anticipated that. What's changed? Uh, well, definitely the tone has changed. Yeah. Um, the And there's an optimism that you didn't really see before. Uh, you know, what, whatever you think of the previous mayor, uh, Nobody got the sense that things were going to get markedly better. There wasn't that expectation. There was a sort of managing expectations in terms of what we could do, what we couldn't do. I think now with the new mayor, there's a sense of renewal. There's a sense that, okay, we may not get everything, but we can get some things. And the mayor has taken a very collaborative approach in terms of the council appointments, appointing not just allies, but you know people who are against her uh, to key positions. So really bringing that whole Toronto spirit to confront some of the challenges that we're facing, which are quite large. So when the by-election happens, a lot of people wanted the job. Were you at all saying what I was saying? And a lot of our listeners were saying, where were you six months ago? I give Chloe Brown a ton of credit. She ran twice. A couple others ran twice, but we got a lot of people. I know Mitzi Hunter, a really popular MPP in Scarborough, came out and said, I want that job. Was it just, do you think nobody thought they could beat John Tory, Josh Matlow, Anna Bilo, they didn't think they could beat John Tory, so they wanted to wait this out. And and they may have run in 2026, but it kind of the schedule sped up when he resigned. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Uh, you know, John Tory was a very, very popular mayor. Uh, he was everywhere. Whatever you think of his politics, he was everywhere. Any event in Scarborough, no matter how big or small, it was a very good chance I was running. There's a ribbon. He's going to cut it. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, people remember that. Half of the job is showing up. Um, yeah. And politics is all about timing. So... A lot of people, you know, they might have had ambitions to run, but they knew they couldn't beat him. And this opportunity sort of presented itself out of nowhere. Uh, so that's why I think why you saw 102 people running. One more on Olivia. The one thing people who really like her have told me, and they won't say it publicly, and again, I, it's not one person begrudging her, is what they're hopeful of is she reconnects with her connections. Being out of politics nine years is a long time. And the concept is, can she go to Queens Park and and fight and battle and scrap? Can she go to the federal government? She did call the federal government out already strongly about the refugee situation. Can she do those things, be front-facing? And um, and you, you kind of you got to get your wrestling tights on sometimes and, and battle for the city. Can she do it? Is that at all a concern of yours? No, I think she can. I mean, I think her approach is the smart one. You know, take a collaborative approach initially, but if you have to, carry a big stick. Uh, Toronto doesn't have many big sticks, but what the mayor does have is the bully pulpit. Mm -hmm. uh, she can rally public opinion. She is an organizer. So she knows how to organize. She knows how to get Torontonians engaged at the grassroots level, which I think is something a lot of people underestimate, is, you know, how do you activate people to call their MP, call their MPPs, and say, you know, we want proper funding for transit. We want proper funding for housing. We want proper funding for refugees. Uh, and, uh, you know, mm. with the refugees specifically, it worked. 
Uh, within a week, I think she was able to secure $97 million. It's not the entire amount that we were seeking, 155, but it's a really good start. It's a start. Yeah. It, it, again, we don't we don't have a sort of a, uh, th- there's no real end game for what I think what we'd call this this crisis and figuring out. And remember also, there's better weather right now. You're probably seeing it in your community. I'm seeing it in Ajax. People um, people who don't have homes are, they, they seem, how would I put it? Not happy to be out, but they're more engaged with being outdoors. That will change in December and January because we know this. We're not Vancouver, L.A., San Francisco, Seattle. You stay outside in Toronto in January, you die. It's, exactly. it's we got to we got to get a lot done before the winter comes. And we saw a lot of that, especially with the TTC. Yeah, uh, where people were seeking refuge in the TTC because it, often it was the only thing that was open late at night that was warm. Uh, yeah. So you saw people sleeping in there. Uh, you saw some of the, you know, violence happen. Not all of it was, you know, homeless people, uh, but a lot of it was people with mental health issues. Uh, so that's really something that we really have to start working towards is, you know, how do we make the TTC feel safe again? It is safe, but yeah. people don't feel safe. And that's really important. So you're the new chair. I want to ask you about that. And so we'll, we'll, we'll be forward facing in those questions, but I do need to ask when that Scarborough RT train derails, um, what were your thoughts? Uh, I was shocked, but I wasn't surprised. You know, as someone who rode the Line 3 almost every day, um, you could feel that physically it did not feel safe. Really? It was like, you know, that roller coaster mind buster uh, at Canada's Wonderland, the wooden one. And it- I know. I can't. My back and shoulders can't okay. tolerate that. I need the new ones. I need the Leviathan. I'm glad you've referenced that. Yeah. Well, if any of your listeners know the Mindbuster uh, <laughs> at uh, Canada's Wonderland, it felt like that. If it- you're older than the Mindbuster, you should pick another roller coaster because exactly. it's been around for 40 years. So exactly. If, you're, if, you're, if you outage the Mindbuster, pick the Leviathan or the Behemoth or the Yukon Striker. There you go. So when that happens, and, and again, so so you've had experiences like it where it's almost like like a bad plane flight. You're like, exactly. thank God I made it. Exactly. You you did, eh? It's you know it was loud. I never felt like it was going to you know derail. I think everybody was shocked. But it's about, unsettling in its moments, right? Yeah, it was loud. It was you know very very rickety. So when it you know derailed, you know thank God there weren't a lot of people on it, and the injuries were relatively minor from what I understand. Um, I wasn't surprised. This was technology that was 10 years past its date in terms of when it was supposed to actually be to mm. decommissioned. And we were sort of keeping it together um, because we were trying to make sure that there was something for Scarborough Transit riders. I, I almost think it's an unfair question to ask you what your biggest challenge is, because when I think about it, if someone were to ask me that, and I'm the chair of the TTC, it's it's just putting all the puzzles together. Um, cost, efficiency, safety, all of it. It's very chicken and egg getting it all together so we've got busy packed trains again. Exactly. Um, you know, one of my our first priorities of the TTC is really making sure that the Line 3 shuttle is ready for back to school. Uh, ready for, we got lucky so that it's not very busy, but once September hits, you know, kids are going to be going back to school, mm-hmm. students. Uh, so making sure that we have that shuttle bus ready, um, at least the interim version, i.e. we won't probably have the, uh, painted red lines down, but like the shuttle that we're currently running, making sure, for example, we have signal priority, making sure that the buses aren't being jammed in the Scarborough Town Center or in the Kennedy when they're dropping passengers off, and making sure we have enough operators to continuously run the service. Do you th- see things, you're, again, New York for seven and a half years, you've been to London, you've seen how it operates. We all sometimes envy um, some systems in, in Europe. Is there anything you see in other major cities and you're like, we got we to gotta be more outside the box and more proactive about where we're going in the years and decades to come with our transit. Uh, yeah, I think what other cities get right about their transit and what we constantly fail at is we put politics before evidence. And you see that in a lot of the decisions that we make, uh, whether it's how we build, what we build, uh, who we contract to build. Uh, a lot of these decisions are driven by politics rather than what is the actual evidence. What do people need to uh, ride in order to get where they're going in a safe, efficient, and comfortable manner. Uh, Jamal Myers is our guest, of course, on Toronto Today. Rick Leary is the CEO of the TTC. W- take us inside. What's what's that relationship uh, exist of? If you're the chair and he's the CEO, how much is the back and forth? How much gets debated? How much communication is there between you and him about how, how this all fits together? You know, we've had several conversations, uh, even prior to me um, being a counselor, in fact, uh, we talked back uh, during the George Floyd 
uh, Black Lives Matter uprising, I had written a, an article about anti-black racism in transit. And, you know, part of that article was calling out the fact that none of the TTC board members were black. None of the TTC yeah. managers were black. And, you know, to his credit, you know, he brought me in. He showed me some of the diversity that was happening. Uh, and within, I think, a few months, they did start appointing black executives. Uh, and Mayor Tory did appoint a black Torontonian to the TTC board. So I did get to interact with him from there. Uh, since I've become chair, uh, we've had some uh, good conversations, especially around line three. Uh, and it's really about building that trust and that working relationship to make sure that we're delivering for Torontonians. Let's end with your work-life balance. How's it, how's it changed? I mean, you've been a lawyer. You've, uh, you know, you've, you've obviously you know, hard work and, and digging in. You're no stranger to it. But how has being an elected official changed you? Uh, it's definitely made me a lot more, um, I would say, rigid about protecting my personal time. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I really have to make sure that, you know, when I'm off, I'm off. I'm spending time with my family. I'm spending time with my friends. I'm, you know, taking care of myself uh, because there's always there's always something, you know, an event I could be going to work that I could be doing, someone that I could be speaking to. But it's really important to remember that you're no good to anyone if you're burnt out. It was so easier, so much easier for our parents, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The only thing that might happen is a knock on the door or the or the or the landline phone would ring. Exactly. And my dad was not answering that phone during six hours of NFL games on Sunday or a major. Go- he was just not not getting the door. He was not getting the phone. And we're just we're slaves to this stuff. We were slaves to all this tech. Exactly. So it's really just, you know, finding that balance. I can't thank you enough for coming in. I think your story uh, is great, but I also think you're a really important person um, in terms of the TTC, but also just in terms of the city sort of, like you said, we, we had a little bit of an awakening with the mayoral by-election that kind of wasn't there for so many of our issues in the fall. And I think you're going to be really important in the years going forward. Thank you for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. It was awesome to do it. Jamal Myers uh, joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We've talked about this before on the show, and the numbers are really stark, um, is how many people leave the country to go get a surgery elsewhere. The last number I saw pre-pandemic that was the tallying up an entire calendar year was 2016. Um, we, we should have better numbers than that, but we don't for 18 or 19. They're hard to find. Um, and so 63,459 Canadians got non-emergency medical treatment outside Canada. And you think about that. That's Most of them would be in the States, but there are people that obviously fly to Europe. You've heard about the story, somebody flying to Romania or, the, or Czechia, as it's known now, or somewhere in Scandinavia to get treated for something. It could be as simple as you cross the border and go to New York State. You cross the border and go to Michigan. Um, but 63,000 is too many. So you're leaving medical dollars, paying out of pocket or with private insurance um, at, at, a, at, an, at a foreign hospital. You're paying foreign health care workers. Um, it's, it's a problem. And physicians in B.C. say we've got a really high proportion of patients doing this now. We're second in Ontario, but B.C. is first. So this is a problem. There's always stories about it. I'm uh, eager to bring on Dr. Sahail Gandhi, who's the former OMA president, and he's kind enough to join us now, getting up early for us on Toronto Today. Dr. Gandhi, it's great to have you on. Thank you very much for the time. Yeah, thank you for having me, Greg. And just so you know, the most up-to-date numbers are over a billion dollars a year spent on medical tourism by Canadians in 2019. Unbelievable. And and I think we'd concur, and even the most adamant defender of, of what we do with healthcare right now would probably say it's increasing, not decreasing. I, I don't know how it couldn't be. Yes, it certainly is. And, um, you know, I think all of us as Canadians should, should actually be angry about that. Uh, I think um, it's a sign of just how badly mismanaged our healthcare system is that it's come to this where Canadians are relying on leaving the country and going to, um, and unfortunately sometimes not great situations, uh, to to get healthcare needs. And we see stories about this more and more every day. Yeah, there have been a few bad stories, um, certainly about Mexico. There have been bad stories about Americans going to Mexico, obviously. Again, no one wants to uh, adopt part and parcel what's happening in the United States uh, for healthcare uh, up here. Too many people fall through the cracks, but there's some very frightening stories about paying out of pocket or, uh, or, or people traveling down for medical services being robbed. There were a couple that were killed earlier, really early in the new year, either February or March. So harrowing stories. Yes, yes, they are. And 
you know, I, I need to emphasize that I certainly understand why people uh, do something like this. Uh, I, I think I mentioned to you that I do work for a medical tourism mm-hmm. company myself, and I'm, I'm sad that I have to do that because, uh, you know, it shouldn't have come to this. Like, it should never have come to this. But having said that, there's that old rule about caveat emptor, you know, let the buyer beware. It's it's really important that if you decide to do this, and I understand why people do decide, they get very frustrated by the wait times, that, that you at least take a little bit of time to do your research, go with a reputable company, and, and really sort of make sure you've got good references for wherever it is that you're planning to go. What turns this around? Are you hearing anything from anybody? And and it just feels like it would take a combination of the medical community and politicians to turn this around. They'd have to be in agreement. They'd have to find, dig deep and find some common ground here about how we can change this. Yeah. You know, I don't see the the kind of bold leadership that's needed uh, from from anyone right now, unfortunately, to to try and turn this around. Um, There's a lot of talk about we need to do a dramatic rethink of how we provide healthcare, And of course we do. And there's a lot of talk about, oh, we need to make some bold uh, decisions and we need to make some some, uh, radical changes. Um, But when push comes to shove, every time you propose a new new solution, it goes back to the same old, well, let's appoint a committee, let's review it, let's study it, let's circle back. Um, so, So I'm not seeing someone saying, you know what, I know I'm going to get flack for making changes. I know that people will be mad at me if I make some significant, uh, bold decisions. Um, but I'm not seeing anyone that has the chutzpah to do that right now. Yeah, it almost feels like, and look, the, the, the end goal, I suppose, of a politician is to get elected in the first place and then stay elected. But you would think um, there'd be some, you know, the, the, there'd be some consideration. Like, let's say here in Ontario, um, I think the Ontario Liberals have a really interesting concept and to figure out, A, how to rebuild the party, but B, also how to reframe how we talk about health care. It feels like the Ford government leans towards more elements of privatization. It feels like the NDP have no interest in changing a, what looks like a broken system and they just want to pour more tax dollars down it. There has to be some kind of hybrid that's that's working in a lot of European countries that we can look at. Yeah, and you know, if you look at it, and it's not just you know, the, the advanced European countries, or actually I shouldn't say that, what we view in, in Canada as the advanced European countries, you look at countries like um, uh, like Romania, you look at Estonia, like Estonia has the best medical record system in the entire world. And how, how did, uh, you know, Estonia, which, uh, how did they do that? How did they accomplish that? Um, Turkey, which is the company, you know, the company that I work mm-hmm. for deals with medical tourism in Turkey, they actually had the kind of radical rethink of their healthcare system in 2008, right? They they actually had a great blueprint for how to radically rethink that. So why don't we copy someone like them? Um, why don't we copy the public health that's done in Japan that had the best outcomes through the COVID pandemic? So it's it's that kind of thinking out of the box and saying, you know what, we're we're going to do this. We're not going to appoint any more committees. We're not going because we've got too many mm-hmm. committees as is. We're actually going to start doing things. And yes, we'll cheese off some bureaucrats. And yes, we'll, you know, we'll ruffle some feathers. But it's what has to get done in the best interests of the citizens of Canada. And I don't know who's willing, uh, doctor, because I, I don't think I can convince you to run to be premier. But maybe I can. Uh, you, you probably <laughs> you probably enjoy a little more peace and quiet than you'd have otherwise. Um, but that said, you and I have talked about the um, the, the sort of those the upstairs of hospitals, of healthcare organizations, of how much we have in terms of administration, vice presidents, people in human resources. Some of those positions are valuable. No one's begrudging what they do, who they are, but we've added a dramatic, dramatic number of them to hospitals. And that's a lot of our tax dollars aren't going to the front lines. They're not going to doctors, nurses, orderlies. Um, they're not. They're going upstairs to people who really aren't on those front lines of healthcare. When we come into the emergency room at nine o'clock, or we've got a, a coughing sick kid at one o'clock, they're, we're not seeing those people. Yeah. So on a per capita basis, Canada has ten times as many uh, um, administrators in healthcare as Germany. Right? Like that. That's ridiculous. We 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 do not need that many. And that's why decisions don't get made in the best interest of Canadians, because the the main goal of bureaucracy isn't to actually accomplish something. It's not to accomplish um, better health care. The main goal of bureaucracy is to self-perpetuate. 
right? Um, and so what you want when you're a bureaucrat is you want to have enough committees saying that you're doing the right thing so you have cover in case something goes wrong. So you appoint more and more committees to have more and more studies as opposed to actually doing something. And unfortunately, that's in all levels of government, but particularly in healthcare. Uh, and, you know, even if there was a politician or a leader who said, you know what, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to have a hiring freeze on all healthcare bureaucrats as part of reimagining the healthcare system. And that includes not replacing people mm-hmm. who retire or leave. Even that would be a great first step. And I haven't even seen that come from anyone. Dr. Sahel Gandhi, our guest on Toronto Today. We talk about um, doctors and nurses not being enticed to move to Ontario from other provinces. I know that was a uh, a big move by the Ford government to try and do that. But again, cost of living. Why would you move from Regina to downtown Toronto? Why would you move from Halifax? That said, are, do you think we're losing really good doctors, surgeons, nurses, uh, technicians to those kind of boardrooms? Does someone look at a doctor after 10 years and say, you know what, let's make you... Uh, vice president of uh, of medicine and and patient flow, and they think not so bad. I get an office. I'm not on the front lines. I can more control my hours, and I'm getting paid just as much, if not more. We're losing good hands on people to those positions. Well, it's not so. We're losing some people to those positions, but we're also losing physicians to uh, and nurses to areas where you know perhaps we don't need as much. So, for example, a lot of family doctors are leaving uh, family medicine. We need good comprehensive family medicine doctors, but they're leaving for different parts of medicine. They're saying, you know what, this this running a practice, the, the administrative burden is ridiculous. So they're working only in walk-in clinics. And not that our walk-in clinics can't need help, but from a health system point of view, we need more of them in a, a comprehensive family practice. We're, we're losing nurses to agencies because they're saying, geez, you know, if I work at a hospital, I have shifts, I got to do night shifts, I have to do this. Um, whereas with an agency, I can pick and choose my hours. So, so we're also losing good people to those kind of areas as well, not just in many worlds. And I don't blame them. I mean, who can blame them for if, if your quality of life is better, if your hours are better, if your pay is better? Because guess what? Some of those, some of that energy and some of that pay, doctor, may go back into taking care of your own health care or an aging parent or if your kid needs extra help. You're, you're doing what's best for you. And I don't blame I don't blame health care workers for that's not a pl- public private choice to me anyway. No, no. And, and it just says that we have to figure out a way to make that kind of work more appealing. Like family medicine, as you know, I'm a family doctor. Yeah. I think family medicine is great. I love looking after my patients. I really um, value the 31 years I spent in my practice, seeing them grow and and have children of their own, and and like mm-hmm. it's been a great experience. But but I can do without the 19 hours of paperwork. And if you can that that I do a week, yeah. right? And if you can figure out a way, and there are ways to to diminish that, you'll make the job more appealing, and you'll increase people going into it. Dr. Sahel Gandhi, our guest. I love our conversations. Thanks for the time today. We're going to stay on this, and I appreciate that you are as well. Thank you for the time. I appreciate being on. Okay, Dr. Gandhi joining us.